those vacuums. Open your Bibles with me, please, to the Gospel of John and uh, the wonderful chapter 11. John chapter 11. You'll notice our text today is the death and raising of Lazarus. And there's sort of a preface to the story in verses 1 through 16. It's too many verses to get through all in one shot. So we'll start there today. We'll read this once through and then we can uh, see some of the themes that John is building on in these couple of verses. If you have your Bibles open, follow along. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. This is the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world but if anyone walks in the night he stumbles because the light is not in him after that he said to them our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep the disciples then said to him Lord if he has fallen asleep he will recover now Jesus had spoken of his death but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Thomas pipes up. Uh, The immediate context of the events recorded here in John 11 is the conclusion to Jesus' public ministry. As I mentioned last week, we're entering um, a shift in John's gospel. That by and large, Jesus' public ministry in Jerusalem has now come to a close. And in that way, John's gospel can really be thought of as two parts of one book or maybe two volumes. The first volume, we could say, is the Book of Signs. And we would call it that because this first half is punctuated by seven signs. They are what Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, refer to as miracles. 
But John purposely doesn't use that word. He uses the language of signs because he wants every one of these miracles to point us to a greater spiritual reality. That's what a sign does. It points you to something else. The second half of John's gospel might be referred to sometimes as the book of glory. And that begins just after chapter 12. And for the most part, it consists of Jesus teaching his disciples in the upper room. He's preparing them. He's telling them about his forthcoming death. He's telling them how the Holy Spirit will come and minister to him while he is gone. And then, of course, it ends with his death and resurrection. And in that way, John's gospel parallels the other gospel writers, as the first half of the gospel is very much concerned with Jesus revealing himself to be the Son of God. His ministry was, in fact, public. He spent his days out amongst the crowds, teaching and healing and demonstrating who he was for everyone to see. The second half of the gospel is when Jesus retreats. He withdraws from this ministry, and he spends time now investing, as it were, into his disciples pouring into his disciples. He turns his focus from the public ministry to discipling the 12 or the 11. In many ways, chapter 11, and you might say chapter 12 as well, um, sort of work as a hinge to this gospel. This is the transition and we'll move rather quickly out of the public ministry of Jesus towards his private ministry in the upper room. So with that being said, the raising of Lazarus is the seventh sign in John's gospel. It is the last sign. And given that this is the final sign in John, we might expect in some way for this sign to be climactic. That it might supersede, as it were, all the previous signs that John details. And I think that that's the case. But in addition, we might also say that this sign is cumulative. And what I mean by that is this sign not only supersedes the others in its significance, but it's, it's uh, drawing on others at the same time. There's a lot that's gone on already in John's Gospels. Ten chapters of rich biblical truth lived out in the life of Jesus Christ and this sign draws on a number of the themes that we have seen and been prevalent throughout the narrative so far. And in these 16 verses, we begin to see the major themes that Jesus is highlighting here and how it is that they work. Specifically, we will see Jesus join his life-giving ministry with the glory of God. He demonstrates to us that the life-giving ministry that he came to give is one that puts God's glory on perfect display. And you can never separate the two. When Jesus gives life, God is glorified. But he also shows us that the glory of God is at the same time the highest and clearest manifestation of his love. As God is glorified in the life-giving ministry of Christ, he demonstrates to us his great love. We can't separate the love of God from the glory of God. 
And so what we end up with is this wonderful sort of three-part theme coming out in the text. Jesus' life-giving ministry, the glory of God as revealed through the Son, and the love of God is given or toned through Christ. So let's just kind of work through the text and see how these couple of themes come out to us. Look again with me at verses 1 through 2. It says, Now a certain man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in the village of Bethany with Mary and her sister Martha. This is the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, what's kind of interesting here in verse 2 is we haven't gotten yet to the episode where Mary anoints the Lord's feet. That doesn't happen until the next chapter. Yet John mentions it here. He knows he's going to talk about it in the very next chapter. <laughs> but he finds cause to mention it here before we've reached that point. Why does he do that? Why does he feel the need to mention this episode early? I think it's because that when you get to chapter 12, and you read about Mary anointing our Lord's feet with the perfume. John wants us to match the two together. To, to connect these two episodes together. And to understand just how transformative it was. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And how this event changed Mary. I think John wants us to understand that at least in part. When Mary got down on the ground and anointed our Lord Jesus' feet. It was in response to what he had done for her brother Lazarus. In chapter 12, we see Mary at the feet of our Lord, a, a heart overflowing in worship and in love and adoration as this episode changes her life forever. And that suggests that it should also change ours also. John continues in verse 3. He writes, So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold... He whom you love is sick. Now, uh, you'll recall from last week that Jesus and his disciples had fled from Jerusalem as they went across the Jordan to where John had been baptizing. So when the sisters send a messenger to Jesus, they would have needed at least a day to reach him for the messenger to travel. Of course, the Lord in his omniscience already knew how serious Lazarus' illness was. But due to how serious Lazarus' condition was, he may have already died before the messenger even reached Jesus. But I want you to notice what the sisters say. They don't spell out the details of his condition. They don't go on and on about what it is that he's suffering with. Rather, they say, the one who you love is sick. The one who you love is sick. It, it certainly hints at the kind of relationship this was, which the Gospels rarely explore. But this tells us Jesus had a very real and loving friendship with Lazarus. And from everything that the Gospel writers tell us, it would seem this was likely a home Jesus and his disciples stayed at often. Whenever they were to come down through to Jerusalem. From northern Galilee. So Jesus is currently in Bethany where John had been baptizing. And that's on the other side of the Jordan. We, we know that because it says John in John chapter 1 verse 28 that is where John was baptizing. 
So remember, the Lord is ministering to those disciples John the Baptist had left there. This village, Bethany, where Lazarus is, lays on the east side of the Mount of Olives and is less than two miles from Jerusalem. So Lazarus isn't a stranger, and neither is Mary and Martha. And they send word to Jesus, the one that you love is sick. This is the first hint that we get in this chapter that love is going to be a major theme. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death. Let's pause there for a second. Um, What Jesus is talking about here is not the result. He's not talking about the result. Jesus doesn't mean this sickness isn't fatal. He's not making a statement concerning the result of the sickness, but the purpose. We know that this sickness is going to result in death. But death would not be the ultimate outcome. It will end in a resurrection from the dead. So Jesus says this sickness is not to end in death. But for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And again, we see whenever the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified. Whenever the Son is glorified... The Father is glorified. I and my Father are one, Jesus said. Now, you may have read this chapter a half dozen, dozen times before. It's easy for us just to skip over these words here, not really consider what Jesus is saying. Um, but this is the first time he speaks here in this episode. I think his words are, are worthy of our consideration. Think about how interesting Jesus' response is. If I made an announcement this morning and and I said, I got a call this morning and brother so-and-so is in the hospital, he's up in Concord, and I said he's extremely sick, the doctors thought that he was going to die last night, but actually it turns out his sickness is not going to end in death, but it is, and then I just stopped right there. (laughs) And I let you finish the sentence, you probably say, well, praise be to God, he's going to (laughs) live. He's going to live. That's the natural pairing, right? If Jesus is actually, the purpose is not death, but it is, we would anticipate him saying life. And certainly that's what he's saying, but he neglects to say outright, Lazarus is going to live. Rather, he says here, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God. And I think he says it this way, for the purpose of bringing together the idea of life with God's glory. Life and God's glory. Jesus' ministry is one that gives life. And in the giving of life, there is a manifestation of God's glory. And the two can never be separated. And as we have seen in John's gospel, that when Jesus talks about life, he's not merely talking about physical life here on this earth, but eternal life, zoe, uh, life beyond the physical. It's the whole reason John writes this gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
that you would have eternal life that is available now in trusting in Jesus Christ. And you see just how wonderful is Jesus' response now. This sickness is not to end in death. He will live. But more than that, in his life, there will be a manifestation of God's glory. Now, this is not new to John's gospel. Jesus has spoken about this reality many times already. For example, he said back in chapter 4 to the, the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water, pointing to the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus confronts the religious leaders of Israel. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, present tense, everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 40, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In chapter 7, we saw Jesus stand up on the last day, the, the, the great day of the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, and he cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus said, I can give you that. In chapter 8, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So we've seen this be a major theme throughout John's gospel. But here in chapter 11, it's almost like Jesus is saying, I've spoken to you about this life. Now I'm going to show it to you. Now I'm going to show it to you. I've spoken by way of metaphor that I am the one that gives life. And in that giving of life, there is glory. Now I'm going to show it to you. Jesus in chapter 11 embodies the truth that he's been preaching for the last 10 chapters. You see how this sign is climactic? <laughs> it, it goes further than all the other signs. Jesus now in Acts, he, he plays out the truth of his teaching. He's taught us that he is the giver of life. And in chapter 11, he says, now let me show you. And in me showing you, the Father and the Son will be glorified. This is amazing. Now, now when you realize that, it changes a couple of things. <laughs> First of all, it infers that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb, there was much more going on here than merely raising one man on that day. One of the things we could say is when Jesus 
raises Lazarus from the dead, it certainly foreshadows the Lord's own resurrection. And I think that's partly why chapters in 11 and 12 act like that, that hinge in, in John's gospel. Just before we go into the book of glory, we see Jesus raise someone from the dead, and that foreshadows what's about to happen to Jesus himself. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. It's not what I do, it's who I am. The other observation is that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead is very much a picture of the gospel. It represents exactly what Jesus did for you and I when he saved us. We see here Jesus acting out the gospel as it were as he raises a dead, lifeless sinner back to new life. We all once were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins until Jesus came along and he called you by name, calling you, as it were, out of the grave as he raised the dead to life. So as you take this singular truth to heart, you recognize that God saved you for his glory. And that he is more committed to his glory in your life than you'll ever be. God is committed to making his glory known through your salvation. He has committed to you that the day he saved you, and he has been committed to you every day since. Praise God for that. He is determined that your life will glorify him. <laughs> Just meditate on that truth. Consider the fact that everything God is doing in your life is for his glory. And I think we struggle with this. I know we do. Particularly when times are hard. When things don't go our way. Sure, we can easily point to the thing in which God can be glorified when things are good. Oh, isn't my God gracious and good? <laughs> we can all do that. But Jesus teaches us here that every hour of every day, Jesus is working out his glory in your life. It may not always be obvious how, how the Lord can be glorified in your circumstances. It may be that you need a little time before you see and understand how God was at work in your life. Mary and Martha had no idea. They waited four days before Jesus showed up. The cloud was dark. It was real death. They went through real grief. And then it came to pass that God was glorified through the death of Lazarus. Be encouraged this morning that whatever it is that you are facing, whatever it is that the Lord allows in your life, his glory is being worked out. And I think that the more that we take this truth to heart, the more you can truly live a life that honors God. Once so many Christians walk around defeated, The more that you genuinely meditate on this truth and make it your own, the more that you can respond through each and every circumstance in a way that honors the Lord. 
I can think of no better example than in the life of my own mother. We're in the middle of sickness. We're in the middle of trials. Over and over and over again, God has been glorified. Jesus teaches us here that every hour of every day, he is working things out for his glory. Now after that, the conversation moves on and Jesus starts to introduce a, a, a second theme in verses 5 and 6. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. <laughs> John makes explicit what is implied throughout this story. Jesus was extremely close to this family. Verse 5 says, Jesus loved them. And yet, when Jesus hears this news, he stayed two days longer, thus allowing, in some sense, Lazarus to die. Jesus purposely delayed, therefore, allowing Lazarus to die. But I want you to notice that conjunction there in verse 6. It says, so, or, or maybe in your uh, translation it says, therefore. And, and I point this out because this is the uh, theological crux of the whole passage. Jesus loved them, so he let Lazarus die. And, and when we read that, it runs contrary to our understanding of love. If the hospital were to call me and say, Nick, your loved one is here and they're really sick, I'd say, I'll be right there. That would be the normal human response. I, I need to get there immediately to, to, to counsel the family, to love the family, to, to pray with the family. I'll be right there. And Jesus does the exact opposite. In fact, it seems like by delaying Tuesdays, he's emphasizing the point, I'm not coming. He underscores the point, I am delaying so that for sure he's dead. Dead, dead, stinketh, four days dead. And that comes out in verse 15, when Jesus says, Lazarus has died, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. I am glad could more literally be translated, for your sake I rejoice. I rejoice. Lazarus is dead, and I rejoice in the fact so that you may believe. That you may believe. So how do we reconcile Jesus' love for them and his delay? Or maybe to phrase the question another way, what kind of love is this? What kind of love is this that delays and allows a man to die? Answer it's a love that understands God's glory is the most important thing. To bring those themes together again, Jesus' life-giving ministry is a ministry that puts God's glory on display as revealed in the person of the Son and at the same time is the clearest and highest manifestation of the love of God given to you through Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death. 
through Christ. God's glory can never be separated from God's love. And as God is glorified, so he is loving those who trust in him. Where is God's love to be found? It is found in his glory. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Because I know that's where his love for me is at its highest and clearest. Far too often, I think Christians believe that when life is comfortable, that's when I'm finally experiencing God's love. (laughs) If I could just have an easy time of it, God would be glorified in my life. And so we struggle to believe that in discipline, in trials, in difficulties, in hardships, are working out not only God's glory, but his love for us. Now it may be that you're here this morning and you're going through a a real tough time. It might be you're in a very difficult season. It may be that those times are, are just ahead for you. And I would encourage you to to meditate upon the tension between five and six because this is life-giving. Jesus loved them so he didn't come. He had something better. He had prepared something better. And within the context of the passage, we understand that in, in order that he would be glorified and that their faith would then be strengthened. Now, the rest of the paragraph deals with the final question, and that is how you might take part in all of this. Um, Jesus has shown us how Jesus is, uh, John has shown us how Jesus' ministry is one that gives life. Life now and life eternal. He's shown us that his life-giving ministry is at the same time the way in which God is glorified. He's shown us how This glory of God is at the same time God's love for us. And if there is anything in that mix of themes that is appealing to you, if there's anything attractive about the idea of Jesus' ministry being life-giving or God's glory being manifested in your life or you being the recipient of endless, boundless, perfect love, if there's anything in you at all that wants this in your life, then you might be thinking, how can I take part in that? How can I have something to do with this man, Jesus Christ? And if that's your question, hang in there, because John answers that at the end of this section in a way that you might not have thought of before. We pick up our story back in verse 7 and verse 8. It says, after this, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? It had only been a few days, maybe a week, since they had escaped with their lives and, and fled Judea. And the disciples, knowing what had happened, are saying, are are you crazy, Rabbi? I mean, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you want to go back through there? You want to go anywhere near Jerusalem? And 
Jesus responds in verses 9 and 10 with something like a a parable or or maybe a proverb. (laughs) He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, what's that saying? I think he's simply affirming the sovereign plan of God for his life. Um, It was still the daytime figurative speaking for Jesus. It was not yet the the 12th hour when when night would come, i.e. the cross. Jesus said essentially the same thing back in chapter 9 this way. He said in verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. In other words, my father's work must go on while it's still day, while there's still time. Night is coming when my work here in my earthly ministry will be finished and I'll leave. But in the meantime, it doesn't matter if the Jews pick up stones or not. While it is day, they need not fear that he will stumble. Oh no, the night would eventually come at the precise time set by God's eternal plan and clock And only then would the Lord stumble, if you will, into his sacrificial death. But as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Verse 11, after saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Here Jesus is not using sleep as a a cinnamon for death. That's how it's often used in the, in the Bible when it talks about somebody dying. Um, but that's not what Jesus is doing here. In fact, he, he's using sleep in, in the exact uh, opposite way. He's using the word sleep specifically to reference that. He's going to raise Lazarus back to life. He's just taking a nap, boys. <laughs> he's making the same point again, this sickness will not ultimately result in death. He's coming back to life. But the disciples, uh, they just don't understand. Verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. (laughs) They're thinking, he'll get better, Lord. Just just leave him. He'll be all right. Verses 13 to 14 explain. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And then verse 16, Thomas pipes up. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. (laughs) the truth is is Thomas spoke spoke much more than he knew Thomas words are spoken out of confusion he didn't correctly decipher verse 9 he doesn't fully understand what Jesus is saying 
And so he believes that if we go and do this, we're going to die. Let, let us go and, and die with him. But John, I think, was so pleased to include this concluding comment. Because as we'll find out moving further in this gospel, the only way which you can partake in Jesus' ministry is if you go and die with him. You see how these words take on such a significance in the light of the, the whole gospel narrative. The only possible way that you can partake of this glory, of this love, of this eternal life, is if you go and die with Christ. And this fits with everything John has been teaching us through this entire gospel. There is in John's gospel this um, believing and unbelief that, that constantly exists and is pulling at one another. This idea of people crowding around Jesus and saying yes to something about him. Oh yeah, I like that about him. There were thousands of them in John chapter 6, the bread of life chapter. Remember, they were seeking Jesus and going around the lake just to be with Jesus. What we saw in John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. You didn't see these miracles as a sign, which, which ultimately pointed to me. No, because you ate your fill with the loaves. You saw me as a, a miracle worker that gave you free food. They loved his works. They loved the bread and fish that he supernaturally created. They loved the healings. Many times the people affirmed something about him. Remember in chapter 2, they, they, they believed, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. They, they, they believed something about him, but they were not believing the thing that he wants to be believed upon. They were not affirming that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God who has come to die for their sins, who will bring about newness of life. And in so much as you don't believe that, you haven't died with Jesus Christ. You like him because he makes you feel good. You say yes to him because he gives you stuff. That's not the belief that he's asking for. John's gospel doesn't allow you to be a spectator. John doesn't allow you to be a bystander. You have two roads and two options in John's gospel. You either walk away from this man and have nothing to do with him, or you go and die with him. It's only when you go and die with Jesus that you can receive the gift of God, which is Jesus' life-giving ministry. It's only when you go and die in Jesus that the glory of God can be manifested in your life. It's only when you go and die with Jesus that you experience the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ provided and atoned for through his blood. An agape love, personal and unique, 
for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus told his followers in Matthew 16, if, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? It may be that you're here this morning and, and you've never forsaken all, taken up your cross, as Paul said, and been crucified with Christ. It may be that you're singing the hymns and praying the prayers, but you're still holding on to those things of this world. And if you were to look in the mirror long enough, it doesn't much look like dying with Jesus. There isn't a whole lot that you're letting go of, and there isn't much pursuit of this man who said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So, wherever you are today, people joining in us in online, consider the, the magnificence of Jesus Christ and his life-giving ministry the glory of God as revealed through his son and the love of God given through the atoning sacrifice in the blood of Jesus Christ. And let us die with Jesus. That's the message for this morning. I hope you're encouraged. If you need the prayers of the church, uh, we'd invite you to come forward this morning. We'll have leaders down front here who would love to pray with you. And um, I invite everyone else to please stand as we sing and worship our great God who turns graves into gardens.